nice to have a one last couple of warm days when you know that there's winter coming. And uh, this is that one. This has been that one week out of the year uh, where all the leaves decide to fall at once. I don't know if your block looks like my block, but it uh, looks like a lot of fun if I was a little bit younger. Uh, but we have bright red and orange leaves all over the street. It's just beautiful. I uh, truly love this time of year in Wisconsin. And I hope that you were able to see God's glory in the way he designed our planets and our, our systems that we have these seasons and these times of change. And, and uh, I did all my winterizing yesterday to get everything outside, all the chickens and everything all ready for the winter. So ready to hunker down, put a fire in the fireplace and enjoy living in the upper Midwest. We're telling Jesus stories. In this series that will last us through the end of the calendar year, we're looking at the stories of Jesus, maybe that we've heard before, we've looked at before, but sometimes it's really easy to miss the point. Sometimes it's really easy to miss the beauty of a story, the meaning, because maybe we're too familiar with it, or maybe we see so much of these stories through the lens of our own experiences and through our own culture, I think that sometimes is a challenge that we have to, have, have to face and understand. And I think also we have to understand the impact that these Jesus stories have on the rest of Scripture. Because everything about Scripture points the way to Jesus. From the Old Testament pointing forward to Christ and the rest of the New Testament pointing back to Christ. Everything about Scripture points us to Jesus. And there are some parts of Scripture that are really hard. I'll be honest with you. There are some things that are challenging, not just to understand, but even to accept when we read them. And we have to be mindful that all Scripture should be viewed through Christ because that's how it's intended. That's how it's written. That's how it played out. There are things that occurred that in their time seemed to mean what they meant. But later on, we see Jesus at work in those other stories. So this morning, I want to look at a Jesus story from Matthew chapter 17. And then we're going to reach back. We're going to go back into Scripture, into the Old Testament, and look at some things and what the relationship is between Christ and us and the law and the Scriptures. If we can learn not only to see and experience Jesus' stories for what they are, we, um, and we can also learn to see and experience the rest of Scripture through Jesus, rather than see Jesus through Scripture. So let's look at Matthew chapter 17. My watch every week decides it's going to try talking to me while I'm preaching, and I'm not sure why. Um, but let's go to Matthew chapter 17, and I'm going to kind of paraphrase. You can read along, but I'm going to kind of paraphrase the scene here. In Matthew chapter 17, Jesus every now and then likes to get away and, and he gets away. He takes his, uh, he, you know, he has his group of friends. He has his disciples, but he's got some favorite friends and that's okay. You're allowed to have favorite friends. So he takes the ones that he's closest to and they're going to go up the mountain. They go up the mountain and all of a sudden two other people show up. Moses and Elijah. Now, a couple of things about Moses and Elijah and who they are. Moses represents the law. Moses is the epitome of the law. Everything that 
the Jewish faith stood on was Moses. And Elijah represents the prophets. The law and the prophets. We've heard that phrase before, right? The law and the prophets. When Jesus tells the greatest, he's asked, what's the greatest commandment? And he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. That's what he says, law and prophets. When you go look at uh, Hebrews chapter 1, uh, the, the author there says that in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets. So we had God's will, his law, his rules, and we had his messages, the law and the prophets. If you read through Matthew, by the way, interesting, Matthew has a very Semitic, very Jewish-centric kind of uh, telling of the story of Jesus. He is very much concerned with drawing the connection between Judaism, between the prophecies, and Christ. If you are very careful when you read Matthew, you will see that Matthew takes great measures to make a connection between Christ and Moses. Moses is mentioned a lot in the book of Matthew because the author wants to show that Moses was the law and now Jesus is the law. So he, he does that. In, in, from his perspective and in his writing, he tries to do that. So here's Moses. He's shown up. He's the law. And then we have Elijah. Now, the prophets are kind of a mixed bag. All the major and minor prophets, they're very different. Uh, some of them show up for a little bit and they just sit in a corner and they sulk and they pray. And then they go away. And some of them do some weird things and some of them see some weird things. And then you have Elijah. When you read about Elijah the prophet, he is the John Wayne of prophets. I mean, he's the cowboy. He's killing people. You know, on Mount Carmel, the prophets of Baal, he calls down fire from heaven and God delivers, and then they murder all the prophets of Baal. They get rid of them. The stories of Elijah are, are Wild West kind of stories. They're, they're, they're adventure stories. They're exciting and, and a little scary. So Elijah is this other kind of almost mythical figure in Judaism because he spoke for God. And he was God's warrior. He was God's warrior. So the law and the prophets are here represented before the, these apostles and, and as Jesus stands before them. There's two miracles that have already occurred by this point in the story, by the way. One is that they showed up, right? That seems strange. Two is that the apostles recognized them. That's legitimately a miracle. Uh, not only did they not have, like what we have, photographs and you know, evidence to look back on and see what something looked like, Jews were not even allowed to draw pictures. Did you know that? Because the Ten Commandments says, make, do not make any graven images, right? Don't make idols. So in their law, they didn't even draw pictures. They were not allowed to draw pictures of people because they didn't want to make idols out of them. So there are no pictures of Moses. There are no drawings of Elijah. Uh, there's not even anything written down about really what they looked like. And so how did they know who these people were? I don't know. That's, but that's one of the two miracles that occur here. So they show up, and they know who they are. And immediately Peter, because of course Peter, says, Lord, 
let's build three tabernacles or three booths or three structures, tents, whatever you want to call it, here on the mountain, one for each of you. Now, important to note, it was during this time was during the feast, the, the festival of booths, which is a thing. Uh, they, where they built booths, t uh, tabernacles, tents for different people, for different things to celebrate or to worship or to, to give praise to. So there was a festival that went on around this time where that would have been commonplace. We're going to build something in honor of this particular person. And Peter comes up with a great idea. Let's stay here. Let's stay here and let's build tents of worship for Moses and for you and for Elijah. And let's just stay here and worship and praise. The law and the prophets are among us. And that's what Peter sees. That's what they all see. What Peter was doing by putting Jesus on equal footing with Moses and Elijah, because notice he says, I want to build a tent for each of you. In Peter's mind, he's promoting Jesus. From his perspective, he's elevating Jesus to being equal with the law and the prophet. Now, when we read it, we would say that's a demotion for Jesus, or at least a lateral move, because we know Jesus is, is greater than all of those things. You read Hebrews, and it comes right out and says, Jesus is better than Moses as a lawgiver. He's superior. So when we see it on this side of the cross, we don't see it the way Peter saw it. He was elevating. Because we kind of look at that and go, oh, Peter. Oh, he thought he was elevating Christ. So I want to stop right there in that story for a minute. And let's go back. Let's go back to some stories that are difficult in the Old Testament. And we're just going to kind of bounce through these. Um, we won't take too long this morning. There's a story with... Uh, Around the time that the Israelites are looking to go into the promised land and, and, and go and, and take, uh, you know, they're taking land and taking places. And there's a story where a couple of spies go in to survey the land. And they have to be very careful. And they end up hiding, as they're being pursued, in a, the house of a prostitute. I don't know how the conversation went to make that decision that we should go hide in the prostitute's house, but that's the decision they came to. And they end up there with Rahab. And they tell Rahab, we need you to lie. We need you to lie for us, and if you lie, God will bless you. Now, this is a Gentile woman, and a woman in a profession that is not acceptable, not considered clean, not considered holy or pure. And they're saying, we need your help. We need you to hide us, lie for us, and God will bless you. And she did lie. And God did bless her. Rahab is saved. And we don't see much about her after that. She shows up again, and she's there uh, initially outside of the camp. She's not a part of the Israelite camp. But she's safe. But she's not in the camp. Then we see her later, and she's in the camp, and she's married to a Jewish fellow. We don't know what happened there. And then the next time we see her is she's one of Jesus' grandmothers. Now look at that. Here is someone who would be the outside of the outside of the margin 
of people God would consider acceptable and clean. And yet, she becomes an integral part of God's people achieving the realization of a promise God made them. And later, she is a part of the story and the coming of Christ to this world. How does that story get written? Remember the, the, uh, the apostles looking up. There's Moses, there's Elijah, there's Jesus. And what happens in the verse, as, as Thomas read? Peter says, let's build the three tabernacles. And then in verse 5, while he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice in the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. God, God gives the final word. God, see, there's hinge points, right, in history. There's hinge points in our story. There's times when things move. They change direction. They pivot. Jesus is one of those hinge points. And here we have the law and the prophets flanking either side of Christ. And they think, here we are. We're bringing Jesus up to be equal to the law and the prophets. And then a bright cloud overshadows everything. And God speaks and he takes the hinges right off the door and hangs it the other direction. This is my son. This is the one you listen to. And what happens when they look up? When they look up, Jesus is there. He says, get up, do not be afraid. And lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. All that was left was Christ. When we see these stories of the old law, the law and the prophets as what they represent, we see some difficult and challenging things. And then we see Jesus changing the story. And all we're left with is Christ. I think the encouragement of Scripture, I think the point of Scripture, when we read these stories, is we're supposed to look up and see only Jesus. Let's move on. You get into to some of the prophets and the old law and the Old Testament. You have people like Ezra. Ezra was a great restorer of the law. Ezra was a, was a back-to-the-Bible guy. Okay, Ezra, and, and he spoke very strongly. You do not accept outsiders into your camp. You don't bring them in. You don't accept Gentiles. You get rid of them. If there's one in there, you leave them in the desert. You let the desert take them. You can't have them. That's, that sounds pretty harsh. We might struggle with Ezra a little bit because he's very harsh about this. And then along comes Amos. And Amos says, no. They're not you. They're not one of you. But God still loves them. Take care of them. We don't kick them out now. So do Amos and Ezra contradict each other? Yeah. Yeah. They do. And, and we can try and figure out how to make it not so, but guess what? Sometimes there are contradictions in the Bible. And I think it's time that we honestly talk about that and accept it instead of trying to pretend it's not there and losing our children because of it. We need to be honest about it. Ezra and Amos did not agree on what to do with Gentiles in their midst. One said kick them out. One said love them and take care of them. What's going on? Why is this here? Because the story of God's people is a wrestling with God. 
They are struggling and they are turning over what God's will is and, and wrestling with him. And that will continue until Christ. That will even continue with us. We're always struggling, always wrestling, always trying to grasp and understand. But Ezra and Amos did not agree on what to do with the Gentiles because God's moving, God's working. And we're going to look up and see that Jesus is moving in that story. See, the people are evolving. How about Hosea? Oh, there's another. That, he's a, he's a, a very interesting of the prophets, a very interesting story of the prophets because Hosea's prophecy was a, an illustration of his life. God says, Hosea, if, a lot of, I'm, I, I know prostitutes tend to come up a lot when we're talking about Jesus stories. It's not really my intention, but there's been three or four or five stories about it. But, I mean, what does that tell us? What does that tell us about how God sees us, about how we see others? I think there's a lot of things there, and I don't think it's by accident. So God says to Hosea, you see that woman over there? She's one of those women. I want you to go marry her. So he does. And she's, she has some kids. And he's not sure any of them belong to him. He even names them, not mine and I don't know you. That's what he named them. And then, before long, she runs off. Back to her life, back to her livelihood. And God says, you need to go find her. And he finds her. And God says, you need to go win her back. Go woo her. Go make her love you again. And change your kid's name. Now, there's a whole lot in there about God and Israel and, and all of that. But there's also Jesus. Because what makes that redemptive story possible, what buys back, what lures back, what wins back the unfaithful wandering heart, the love of Christ. We read that story and we're wrestling with what we should make of it. And when we look up, we see Jesus. You see, there's an argument in Scripture. There is an argument happening in the Old Testament. Here is the law. Here is what we keep. Here is what we follow. Here is what we're capable of. And there is a constant argument through Scripture. God answers and solves the argument through Christ. You see how the law and the prophets are a conversation and then we come to Christ, the argument gets answered. How do we deal with, with slavery? Slavery appears in the Bible, does it not? Now, the old law, they had a way of dealing with slavery. Now, I will say this. Uh, slavery in that time was not like what we think of today. Slavery in our own history, um, the buying and selling of people and the mistreatment, they had rules. The Jewish people had rules about how you treat your slaves, and what you're responsible for taking care of them. Now, also had some rules about how to beat them. So I'm not going to act like it was all rosy. But slavery was an accepted and viable source of a livelihood, too. If you were completely destitute, you could sell yourself as a slave and live that life. So it was a thing. It was a fact of life. Part of, I mean, And the, the vast majority of our history, 
on this world, it's been a thing. And it's kind of a tough thing to read about in, in Scripture. Even in the New Testament, they had these laws. They had these rules about slaves and how you deal with them and what you do with them and how you treat them and what the responsibilities are. And then Paul wrote a little letter that, thank God, made it into our Bible called Philemon. It's a letter written to a man named Philemon. And he says, hey, I've got your runaway slave. He came to see me. And I'm going to send him back to you. But you should know something. He's not your slave anymore. He's your brother. Because he's a child of God. Slavery had existed and would continue to exist and even be accepted by the people of the world in that time. Wrestling with what we do about that and how we accept what we perceive as an injustice amongst people who are supposedly following the will of God, that's a tough conversation. That's a difficult argument. That's something we've got to struggle with. And yet Paul, in his writing to Philemon, says Jesus changes the argument. Jesus changes the conversation. He is your brother. He is not a slave. You are his brother. You are not his master. Jesus changes the relationship. The law defined it one way. Jesus defines it another. Completely different. What do we make of things in, in like in the Old Testament? Uh, the Canaanite genocide, as it's called. They took over Canaan. God said, kill everything. Everything. Everything that lives. Man, woman, child, livestock, kill it all. Don't leave anything. What do we make of that? What do we make of that and a loving God? How do we reconcile that? Well, I think there's a couple of things to consider. One is that hyperbole was a very real part of Semitic Middle Eastern war talk. Still is. Uh, you might remember the, the first Gulf War, even a little bit in the second one. Uh, Saddam Hussein had a, a PR guy. In the first Gulf War, actually, his PR guy was like a redhead Christian. It was really odd that he was working for Saddam Hussein. Like, a, didn't look like he should be. But he would stand there in front of the cameras and say, oh, there's no troops in our country. They're not here. They're not attacking the capital. Everything's fine. Everything's great. Saddam Hussein's in power. Meanwhile, tanks are rolling in behind him. And they're saying, no, everything's fine. That's how they talk. That's, that's Semitic war talk. They talk about destroying everything. They use hyperbole. So there is, we, do, we must consider that sometimes that's the way it goes. But there's also no evidence, physical evidence, to suggest that they wiped out entire people or committed a genocide against the Canaanites. In fact, the evidence seems to suggest, because we see it as we're reading along, all of a sudden they're still there. You go a few chapters in, they come into Canaan, they come into the promised land, and guess what? They're still around. So they clearly didn't do it. You see, we're always having to ask these questions when we're dealing with God and his law and his prophets. And Jesus answers those questions. Moses gives us law, and Jesus shows us that love trumps law every time. Look at the first uh, bit of the Sermon on the Mount. First couple chapters there. How, many, how often does Jesus say, it doesn't 
three, four times. You have heard it said, but I say. You have heard it said, do not murder. But I say, don't even have anger towards someone. What's he doing there? Is he, now I, I, growing up I heard it taught, oh, he's not doing away with the law. He's just, you know, um, getting back to the heart of the law or something. I, I don't know. I think he's rewriting the law. I think it's pretty clear he's rewriting the law. And he's, it's not about it being more or less restrictive. Or, the, the point is that the law was only ever designed to get them so far. Moses was only going to get them so far. Elijah was only going to get them so far. Jesus and the message of the transfiguration is this. Jesus gets us all the way. The law, the prophets, were to get us to a point. Jesus takes us the rest of the way into a relationship with God and into a saved position and a home in heaven. We see this in the book of Hebrews. We can see this um, in Galatians. In our Bible class this morning, we read in Galatians. Um, and in, in chapter 3, where it calls the old law a tutor or a guardian. It's a guide that takes you to a certain point. And then if you get, you know, about in verse uh, 23, 24, somewhere in there, Paul says, but now we don't need that because we have Jesus. The story has changed. When we read through Scripture, as much as we're trying to focus on Jesus' stories and read them with fresh eyes and see them with a fresh perspective, we must also take that and place it over the entirety of Scripture and look at every story in that light and in that context. As Peter did, as the apostles did on that mountain, we should look up and we should see only Jesus. Because these stories from Genesis to Revelation do one specific thing. They point to Jesus. And they have a lot of value in other ways, but if we miss that, we've missed all of it. We need to look up and see Jesus. See Jesus in the law. See Jesus in the prophets. See Jesus in the gospels. See Jesus in the epistles. See Jesus in our life. These stories matter. And the transfiguration was not an endorsement of Jesus by the law and the prophets. He doesn't need their endorsement. He's been around longer than they have. It was Jesus being affirmed by God that he has come to fulfill and complete and do away with and make right and set in place all the things that need to be taken care of. It was an affirmation by God that Jesus is a part of the story. And when we look up, we see Jesus in Rahab, the prostitute that hid, hid, uh, hid spies. In Ezra and Amos, and how, how they dealt with outsiders and Gentiles, we see an evolution taking place amongst the people. In the questions about slavery, in the words Paul wrote, in the story of Hosea, and in countless other stories that cause us difficulty, that give us pause, that make us go, wait a minute, 
We see the wrestling. We feel the turning of trying to figure all this out. And at the end of it, we see Jesus saying, I'm here to finish the story. Love trumps law. And through the love of Jesus Christ, we can be made whole. We can be saved. The story of the transfiguration might be one of the stranger stories we read in the Gospels. Because it's some pretty fantastic, dramatic things happening. But it is God's message to us and to all those who know that story. Listen to him. He's the only one we need to listen to. He is the final say. He is the answer to the questions. He is the conclusion of the argument. He is our Savior, the Son of God. Dan's going to come and lead us in a, in a song, 517. As we conclude this morning, I hope that each of you know that you are loved, not just by those of us in this room, but by God and by his son Jesus. And if there's ever anything we can do collectively or individually to walk with you and help you, we want to do that. This family matters, and, and we want to always treat it that way. So if there's anything we can do, please let us know as Dan comes and leads us.